0: blog talk radio
1: Welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we are going to have another very interesting show. We have uh, just one of my favorite psychologists, authors, teachers, Dr. Mario Martinez, who is the author of The Mind-Body Code, which just today, I believe it is, reached a new level at... The Amazon.com best sellers list, and they'll be telling us a little bit about that too. This, uh, book, also by Sounds True, is available as a CD set, uh, goes into an incredibly important area regarding the nature of, uh, the nature of health and illness. And looking at some of the subjects we love talking about here at A Better World, which is the belief systems, emotional conflict and stress, how these are influencing the physical body all the time, and actually, of all things, these seem to be the very basis of what it is we're uh, facing as a society, and really, as Mario says, as a culture, and uh, it's um, it's a really interesting domain that Western medicine doesn't really pick up on, so uh, we're going to be spending today's show going into this, kind of peeling back the layers of this level of understanding. Uh, Mario Martinez is in South America right now, so we're having a little technical difficulty in getting him connected, so I'm going to put on a little Mozart in the meantime, so enjoy yourself while I get this uh, organized here for you all. Okay. Hey, well, uh, I want to welcome you back again to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're still having a little bit of difficulty getting uh, Dr. Martinez on uh, through uh, the uh, the radio uh, engineering board, but we're working on it. We're working on it. Thanks for your patience. Appreciate it. So I'm going to just uh, share with you a little bit of a, a context in which we will be speaking soon. I'll be speaking until uh, Mario enjoys us. But I just want to say, uh, Mario Martinez has, is world renowned for the work that he's been doing over the course of many, at this point, a few decades in looking at, really, you could say, scrutinizing this really precious relationship uh, between our cultural beliefs, our understandings, and the physical body. Uh, not to mention our emotional lives. And, but in respect to the physical body, it plays this very interesting role of how the overall belief systems of our culture are actually constantly influencing the way uh, and the ebb and flow, if you will, of our immune function, of our thinking, and our way of inwardly behaving physiologically as well as mentally. We are all aware of the mental aspect, you could say, of the morphogenetic field of the culture, Um, but few of us are as deeply aware of the effect it has actually on our body. And this is an area that Dr. Martinez is really a specialist in, has been uh, brought around the world to do this kind of study and help to peel back the layers of understanding of why some people are getting healthier, other people are getting sick, and in particular, he's done a tremendous amount of work in the area of uh, centenarianism. So, uh, let's see. <laughs> we just had him, and he just disappeared. He's coming back shortly. So, um uh, And it's so interesting the work uh, that Mary Martinez has done with centenarians because they have their own set of unique belief systems, you could say. And uh, they, um, they operate according to another drummer, you could say. They dance to another drummer, not the conformist social or even cultural norms. They've stepped out of those, and uh, <laughs> we're trying to get this organized, so thank you for bearing with us, but uh, we will be expanding upon this. Excellent. It looks like, Maria Martinez, are you with us? Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. I can hear you. Wonderful. Welcome, Welcome to the show. Welcome to a better world.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Uh, thanks for bearing with us, everyone, as we put together the, uh, technical, uh, the technical part of what we're doing here. Now we can dive into the other technical part, which has to do with your coding the mind and body relationship, which you've done, I want to just say from the beginning, so brilliantly. You're uh, really a wonderful instructor and teacher of minds through the work that you've been doing for these decades, Marielle. It's really, uh, it's really impressive. You've managed to step out of the ordinary stream of thinking with, of course, I know your mentor, um, Dr. Solomon, George Solomon, and you've really been part of forging a new way of thinking about the relationship of culture to uh, physical health or physical illness. So just to start with, Thank you. Gracias, as we say.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I remember uh, George told me that uh, breaking paradigms, uh, you pay a price, and I'm certainly paying it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But you will be paid with a higher currency as time goes on. (laughs) Oh, I uh, agree.
2: (laughs) It's well worth it.
1: Yes, it is well worth (laughs) it. We really actually couldn't do anything else but be authentic the way we both are because uh, we'd be paying a dearer price for it. And in fact, I would say that uh, mainstream thinking, slow as it is to act, is beginning to get the idea. I know I see this with my own clients and uh, my students. They're really, really catching on to the, uh, the truth behind how cellular activity is shifted through thinking. And, you know, as you go the next step, to cultural belief systems. So could you uh, expand upon this? I, I gave an overview, but I'd love to hear you go into out basically the platform of your book and the work that you've been doing for some time now.
2: Okay, well, <clears throat> what reductionist science does is it, it'll come up with reductionist premises and it'll say, how can a thought affect a cell? Are you going to talk to a cell? No, it doesn't work that way. And they stop there. But if you go deeper and you begin to look at how we learn that our that our brain uh, and our perception is cultural and I'll explain that in a minute but how we learn we before we have a language we're learning this information constantly coming in and you have body information when you're hungry a newborn and they don't know the word for hunger they don't know the word for mother but they see a symbol of a bottle or a breast they make the association this psycholinguinology that's going on when they make the association later They give it a word and they say mother, bottle, but that's already been embodied and encoded into what I call a bioinformational field. When you look at that, then you can begin to see that our immune system, our nervous system, and our endocrine system are biosymbolic. For Uh example, if you... And here's the cultural component and the psychoneurological component. If you shame someone, let's say in the West, you shame anybody... And they will have inflammation. They will have molecules that cause inflammation, like interleukin one and tumor necrosis factors. These are molecules that cause inflammation, as if you were, as if you had been wounded. Uh, now, in the West, you would have that inflammation if you shame the person, because in the West we're very individualistic. In the East, somewhere in Asia, you would only be having the inflammation if you f- believe that you have, sh- you have shamed the group rather than you. So there's a culture component and there's a psychonormatological component. Totally mm-hmm. culturally learned. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, in other
1: words, both the cultural beliefs, i.e. the context, of what appears to be a physical uh, stress signal or illness, is as important or it's actually a defining characteristic of what it is we've referred to as illness, or actually even more so disease. You make an interesting distinction, actually, which I, I'd like you to make for our audience, between what we refer to as illness and what we refer to as disease.
2: Well, yes, and, and that's where you take the anthropology and the medicine together. For example, if you have a... Uh, uh, something a symptom that in the west would be considered um anemia then you look for the attribution attribution is extremely important in in all of biocognition then you would say well there's uh there's possibly some loss of uh, red blood cells and we will treat it based on that uh, b12 or anything that needs to be done you look for uh, possible hemorrhaging and so forth you treat it that way and the person gets better but if you have the same symptoms in uh, the jungles of bolivia the shaman who is the culture editor who's the equivalent to the uh, doctor will call it limpu and, and limpu is a terminal is illness
1: that he's the authority in the context
2: yes he's yes. the culture editor the authority in the context and that person will consider limpu a terminal illness because the ideology the interpretation the the attribution is that a a spirit of a of a uh, of a child that 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 died early uh will inhabit your body in order to stay on Earth and it will consume your body and go to another body. If you're a Western white or mestizo, you could be cured by the conventional treatment of, uh, for anemia because the mestizos, which are the whites and, and, and the Indians, uh, mixture, they, uh, they associate themselves with the white. If you're an Indian, no amount of Western intervention will save you. You will have a terminal illness and you'll die. But even more interesting than that, there was an an agrarian reform in the 1950s in in Bolivia, and the Indians were given, or the the natives were given, a tremendous amount of land. There was an agrarian reform, they got land. So they went up the scale, and they were whites, then Indians, and then mestizos. Since the mestizos lost the association with the power of the white, when they began to have what appeared to be Anibia before, it became limpo, and they would die just like the natives. So you see socioeconomics, culture, and, uh, and disease. Fascinating.
1: So here we have an, uh, a socioeconomic defining criterion that affects physical health as well. When people perceive yes. themselves to be financially and socially better off and on the upper side of the ladder they tend to be more physically robust and able to deal with um, offsets, if you will, uh, more fluidly. And as they descend on that ladder, less so.
2: Yes, and what also interacts is the bonding of the family. You could have a very wealthy family that doesn't have bonding and a very poor family that has bonding, and the one that has bonding independent of socioeconomics would be healthier. So it's an interaction of the two factors.
1: Yes, exactly. So again, what we're looking at is uh, what my old teacher of uh, neurolinguistic programming, Mario Richard Bandler, one of its founders, used to say, is look at the primacy of the subjective. Because our subjective belief systems, our perception, and the valuation we give things internally – are going to be those defining factors in our health, our happiness, and our well-being that we really end up to be the authors of the whole the whole game, if you will.
2: Uh, exactly. I think what, what that's a really good point, and I'll expand on that. The brain interprets time and space not in what's going on out there, but the interpretation that we make of time and space. For example... It's more important to believe that you're loved than to be loved. Uh, uh, as you can see in the people that uh, that have all these adorations and people that love them, uh, uh, rock stars and so forth, and they get self-destructive and they commit suicide because they. It, it doesn't matter what's coming out from the outside. What matters is the interpretation that you give of what's coming from the outside. Another example, stress is an interpretation, a contextual interpretation. Let's say that you and I are talking now. And let's say we're, we're I'm at the studio, and we are talking. And the context is that we're having a an interview, talking about mind body. Then a tiger goes in, and what happens? A stressful reaction. We have cortisol, uh, we have adrenaline, noradrenaline. The immune system stops, and you have a stressor. But what happens if we're having a conversation about taming tigers? The tiger comes in. The interpretation: Oh, here's a tiger we can tame. Totally contextual interpretation rather than something that's uh, uh, a monolith uh, stressor.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. That's a very good example. And you're also implying in what you're saying here, Mario, is uh, another distinction that is oftentimes lost, which is that uh, it's our mind and it goes right along parallel with what you're saying. Uh, The brain does not distinguish between what we call real What we call imaginative, or let's even say unreal, or even what's virtual, it's experiencing it in the moment, in the present as real, and will have all of the reactions as real. Which is why, by the way, movies are so powerful a medium, because it's as though we are in the movie itself, our nervous system is experiencing it as real, even though we know it's we could be watching the wizard of oz or peter pan
2: yes and and and, and that's uh, i'll give you an example of how powerful that is mm-hmm. uh some work was done by McClellan, david McClellan's a uh, psychologist uh and he looked at uh, uh, there's something called uh igas these are antibodies that fight the upper respiratory virus igas are part of the immune system It's an antibody created by by the b cells and he had he measured the igas in the saliva it's in the saliva and in, and in the blood and he measured the igas before and after showing a 15 minute video of mother teresa doing compassionate things and another group a 15 minute video of the nazi army doing the atrocities he measured both groups afterwards and as you can predict the people that were watching mother teresa the igas went up in significantly higher and later, other studies also show that the T cells went up, and NK cells, and anything that you can think of in the immune system goes up. Watching the Nazi army, the IgAs went down significantly, which means that you're more prone to catching a cold. But even more interesting than that, uh, McClellan couldn't figure out why some people who were in the in the positive group, why their IgAs dropped so quickly. So he did another study, and he looked at uh, he added one component, which is projecting, letting people project what's going on. And he simply showed them a picture of a man and a woman sitting on a, on a bench on a park bench, talking to each other, very, uh, innocuous. So you could project your own feelings or your own perception. Uh-huh. And then he asked them to write a little story and he said, what, what's going on with these two people? Some people would say, Oh, he just told that he got a new job and he got a promotion. She told them that they're, that she's pregnant. They're going to have a child. The other group, uh, he just told her that he fell in love with someone else and he's going to leave her. She just told him that, that she was diagnosed with cancer. Those were the people who dropped. The reason is that the immune system will respond not to immediate things, but to the baseline that we have of the operative consciousness that we live.
1: Yes,
2: yes. Very interesting. That
1: that last part of the of the study was sort of like a, a living Rorschach, you know? Yes. They could project, whatever it is where they came from. In other words, uh, we see as we are, as they say, not as it is.
2: And we impose ourselves into the world, and that's our perception.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, therefore, what you're also positing here is that there is a, a physiology, if you will, and an immune function related to um, compassion, and by extension, we would say there is a physiology of hope. There's a physiology of a feeling of self-esteem and confidence. There's a physiology to laughter and love. Could you expand on that?
2: Yes. Uh, I think, for example, if, if, I think metaphors and, and narratives are really – learn this from anthropology. You can say something with a narrative, and and you you've talked about 300 pages in a book – uh for example you can um you can create a world based on on your belief systems so uh let's say that your belief system is one that uh the world is uh is dangerous that you can't trust people that uh you have to be very careful because they're out there to get you that mindset what it does is it creates you you're saying that to your psychoneuroimmunology you're saying that to your to your body And so Mm -hmm. the body says, okay, if this is what's going on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep you on hyper-alarm adrenaline. I'm going to increase cortisol chronically, which causes immune uh, deficiency. The chronic uh, adrenaline will cause uh, the uh, pain receptors to activate. So right there you've taught yourself all kinds of problems, inflammation, chronic pain, and uh, under-immunity, which which makes you then uh, open the propensity to whatever illness you have in the family because illnesses are propensities not genetic sentencing. hmm Beautiful, beautiful.
1: Actually you're you're outlining another interesting distinction that I learned from from your book, The Mind Body Code. In fact I want to let everybody know that uh you just I mentioned it before you got on the air, Mario, you just attained another level at Amazon.com. Tell us what what happened today?
2: well uh the book is number one now in the uh medicine and psychology category which i'm very pleased and and, and humbled that's by it beautiful, beautiful. well mazel tov, as we say in
1: chinese that's uh thank you <laughs> absolutely <laughs> the mind body code how to change the beliefs that limit your health longevity and success uh and it's uh published by sounds true who's been uh, just delightful to deal with in uh arranging this interview and uh all of that, it's really its really been a pleasure. And this is great news because this means that even though people like you and I have been salmon swimming upstream, um, I'm not saying we're becoming <laughs> sharks, but maybe we're becoming more popular dolphins at this point.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. It's very encouraging to see that. And the book, one thing that I liked about Sans True, had an excellent editor, and uh, they allowed me to not dumb it down. I, I didn't want to write oh, it academically and esoteric, but I, but I, all throughout the book I tell the, I tell the reader, I, I trust your in, your intellect, come with me, and yes. move through the chapters and, and the exercises that I teach, and it really worked. Uh, you, you, you have to respect your public. You can't just dumb it down or make it completely uh, incoherent uh, with uh, esoteric terms.
1: That's right, that's right. And it, it is a really intelligent and engaging book, Uh, that I don't feel is dumbed down at all, and it's a nice mixture. I mean, one of the things that I keep seeing in my work uh, in neuropsychology, I'm not a researcher like you as such, uh, but more of a student, and I integrated into my work as a a holistic sex therapist, is that there's a lot of storytelling that goes on uh, because uh, we are dealing with the primacy of the subjective, We're not looking at an objective science the way that Western medicine posits itself, but clearly is not, and doesn't recognize the importance, except for in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, of subjective experience and subjective uh, perception. Only now is that beginning to make any kind of dent. And it's through the portal, I would say, of, of stress, and stress management, and recognizing the role stress has in the formation of of disease, so they feel they have there's a little mental emotional leverage being sh- sh- that's showing up, you could say in the uh, in the clinical setting, unlike in the past. But one of the distinctions you make is something I really uh, appreciated, which is that we're not only talking about the release of cortisol, but uh, as a stress hormone uh the fear flight freeze kind of uh reaction, but we're also looking at you made it clear uh inflammatory agents that will get released into the bloodstream into the tissue when other levels of um let 's say uh how how would you describe it when would those get activated? <laughs>
2: Well, I, I think what's happened with uh, conventional science is that it needs stress uh, more than it needs to. And, and, and it, it interprets mind-body through stress. And it's not just stress. It's the uh, pro-inflammatory products that, that that you were talking about. I'll, I'll give you an example. There were some studies that looked at measuring inflammation and measuring cortisol. Cortisol would be considered stress-related, and inflammation would be considered uh, something more than, than just uh, stress. And some people were asked to write about things in their lives that they felt ashamed of and people were asked to write and things that they felt guilty about. The people that felt guilty had a higher level of cortisol, which would be considered stress. The people who were writing about shame had a higher level of inflammation. So if you just look at stress measuring cortisol, you're going to miss the most important part, which is the inflammation that has to do with anything from uh, cardiovascular problems to uh, arthritis and uh, all kinds of things. So why is that? The reason, the way I interpret it, is that you are owning up, for example, when you're guilty, you're owning up of something that you did. So you yes. have more power. you're more You're more empowered in the sense that this is something that I did. When you're shamed, this is something that someone is doing to you that you don't have control, so you're more disempowered. And when you're more disempowered, you're going to have a different reaction. You're going to have probably more more pro-inflammatory kind of products. So if you look at stress alone, you're going to miss all the inflammatory things that are going on that could probably be even worse than stress.
1: Yes, exactly. That's a very, very important point because we often say um, stress chemicals, and it remains rather generic, but this brings it down to a level of specificity that I think is uh, really, really valuable. You are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we have a uh, newsletter, a Better World newsletter, that we send out to lots of people across the country and actually the world. It's for free, and it's on our website, TV. It announces our weekly shows. There are three of them. A Better World TV uh, every Monday evening in New York City, A Better World on, well, Progressive Film Hour, I should say, on Gary Knowles, Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday afternoon, and then A Better World Radio on Blog Talk Radio. So we love that you uh, come and join us and listen to us as well in archive and forward this to your friends and family and colleagues so they too can get this level of nourishment because uh, so many people, uh, were told, benefit from it. We're spending today's full show with Dr. Mario Martinez, who is the author of The Mind-Body Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success. Let's go, Mario, into some of your wonderful work with centenarians. This is something that's also distinguished you in the field because you've really uh, borne down on uh, understanding the the psyche of uh, those who are over 100 years old and how they got there and what do they do that's different than uh, everybody else. Could you talk to us a little bit about what you've what you've discovered with them? Yeah,
2: that's very exciting work. Uh, by the way, they're uh, the centenarians are the fastest growing segment of the population in the United States.
0: Uh, what I did,
2: <laughs> so that's uh, good news. What I did is I studied the healthy centenarians, only healthy centenarians. Because uh, a lot of people are afraid of growing older because of the connotation that they have that growing older is, is a deteriorating process. So I wanted to know what what it was like to grow older healthy, and what I found I found things that I was not expecting. Number one, it's not genetics. Genetics is only 20 percent. The rest is the bioinformational field that you live and the and the cultural beliefs that you have. Also, these people are not um, they're not in that. Uh, your hypocrisy mindset that uh, well, as because you're older, uh, you have to be respected, or because you're older, you should be promoted. In fact, most centenarians act like uh, 17 and, and 18 year old uh, people. <laughs> they don't live; they're very funny. They don't live to uh, to to be old. The way they live is what makes them old. I asked yeah. a centenarian um, how, what what's middle age, and he said that's a dumb question. You don't know till you die. There's no such thing as middle age. And that's true. <laughs> it
1: sounds like a George Burns joke.
2: <laughs> exactly, yes, yes. And, and another one, which I, I've heard other people say it too, so apparently it's very very common because one of them said it to me. I asked him, and, and I'm not advocating this, I'm anthropologically reporting it. I'm just reporting yeah. what I saw. Uh, I asked him, when was the last time you went to a doctor? And he said, oh, about 50 years ago. I said, well, why? Said, well, because I had a problem. I don't have any problems, I don't go to a doctor. So I asked him with a Western mind, so what, is, what do your doctors have to say? And he said, I don't know, they're all dead.
0: So, I love that and I've,
2: heard, <laughs> and I've heard other people say that so apparently it's pretty common with centenarians to do that right. mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> the patient
1: far <laughs> outlives the doctor you know. yeah so why should I go to him you know.
2: <laughs> but it uh, I, I think the other thing that I found too is that they have of course a sense of humor but they know how to forgive that's a very important component not forgiving is one of the most toxic things you can do. And by forgiving, I don't mean an intellectual process. In fact, it's so important that I dedicate a whole chapter on forgiving. It's not intellectually saying, well, I forgive you because I'm a good person or because nobody's perfect. That doesn't work. It's it's a mind-body process that needs to be done. It's complex, but with the right tools, you can do it fairly quickly.
1: Will you go into that a little bit here? I would very much, I think that forgiveness is such an enormous part of... uh, our idealized culture, but so little part of our actual culture.
0: It's, yes, uh, it's an
1: idea, yeah. you could say, that's hanging out in the ethers all the time. We should forgive in a phrase like that. But how to forgive, you could almost say the nuts and bolts of it, is something I don't think a lot of people have their, uh, their arms around. Uh, no, it's very, very share different. And love for you to really give, that would be an amazing gift to our audience.
2: Okay, think about it this way. Make a little picture where you can see yourself as a circle. That's you. That's your bioinformational field. Then look at another circle and that circle is your interpretation of the world. Your interpretation of the world. When a predator hurts you, when a person hurts you, that they do something to you that that you're resentful and you don't want to forgive, you take that person out of that world and you put it into your bioinformational field. So you have interpreted that and what we do is we try to deal with the person outside. It's not the person outside. It's the person you created inside. And forgiveness has nothing to do with the predator. It has nothing to do with reconciling. That person continues to be a bad person. The rapist continues to be a rapist. But what you do is rather than forgive that person in, in, in the conventional sense, what you do is you re-empower yourself by looking at the things that you've done, never thinking, like some psychologists will say, well, thank the the predator because they've taught you something. I think that's nonsense and dangerous. What you do is you begin to look at the things that you have done in your life that were honorable, that were committed, that were loyal to yourself. And I'll give you a specific example. I talk about, as you know, I talk about three wounds. I call them archetypal wounds because I see them in every culture. The yeah. three ways that you can be wounded by a culture are... Either shame, abandonment, or betrayal. So before you try to forgive, you have to find out what wound did that person uh, perpetrate. Was it shame? Was it uh, com- was it a uh, an abandonment, or was it uh, betrayal? And once uh-huh. you know, then you can begin to work because each of the wounds has a healing. So let's say that you were that you were raped, and you consider that to be a shame, which is probably the great shaming that you could do. First, you have to know that shame is the wound that disempowered you. What is the wound that empowers you? Honor. Honor is the healing field for shame. Nothing to do with the perpetrator. So you begin with a technique that I teach. You you go into deep relaxation, and it's complicated, but I'll give you the essence. Uh Uh, Then you begin to look at, okay, this happened to me, and I was shamed, and and, and you actually, not intellectually, but you actually embody it. Then what have I done in my life that was honorable? totally unrelated to the, to the incident.
1: Mm-hmm. And you
2: might remember that you did something honorable when you were in the seventh grade. You, uh, uh, you took uh, the blame for somebody else and whatever it is that you consider. be, And then you bring that and you embody that. You embody, meaning that you experience what that honor was. What it does is or, that or that re, honor Or
1: re-experience it. Re-experience
2: it. Re-experience it and, and what I call uh, embodying it. And by, uh-huh. by re-experiencing it, you're changing the psycho-terminology of helplessness to a psycho-terminology of an empowerment. Then you do one more process, and that's what you do the forgiving, but unrelated to the to the perpetrator. The, the predator becomes uh, benign indifference, as the Buddha say. They, uh-huh. You have nothing to do with the predator, but what you're doing is you're cleaning out your own bioinformational space that you created, that you brought in the predator in. Then you can decide if you want to reconcile or not with a with a You don't want to reconcile, but let's say that you have something that happened with your mother and you want to maintain that relationship, then you can reconcile, but you reconcile with benign limits. You don't go back to the times when when you were being shamed, but you set your benign limits and you say, this is how I'm going to have a relationship with you. I determine how how far I go with you so that I don't get burned again. Yes, yes.
1: Understood. Understood. That's very, very interesting. So in a sense, to interpret what I hear you saying, uh, the person will be, in a sense, reconditioning themselves, in a sense, remembering the moment of the wound, or reconditioning themselves with the opposite virtue related, related to the wound. So if it's shame, then as you say, it would be honor you could say the flip side of it, and you're re- cellularly reprogramming or reconditioning those cells that had been hurt, that memory that perpetuates the hurt, the shame, with the, the nobler, if you will, the more virtuous aspect of honor.
2: Yes, and, and I know how you mean it, but I want to be clear that in the general sense, it's not a reconditioning. It's not replacing one with the other. It's recontextualizing the felt meaning. The meaning is very important. So it's not a behaviorist, and I know you don't mean it as a behaviorist, but uh, so it's not misunderstood by others. It's not a behaviorist replacement of one behavior with the other. You're recontextualizing the felt meaning. And what is the felt meaning? When somebody says to you, I'm going to hit you over the head with a bat, that is a cognition. When they hit you over the head with a bat, that's the felt meaning of being hit with a bat. So that's yeah. the difference. You recontextualize it at the meaning level, at the felt meaning level. So I'm glad you brought oh. that up because I to make-
1: yeah, exactly. No, thank you. I I appreciate that point. It's a it's a good one. Um, in, in a sense, you you're another way we could put it is we're reframing the experience by shifting the context of the actual experience.
2: Yes, and the meaning changes, and the meaning is extremely important.
1: Exactly. The meaning is where it. It hinges the whole thing hinges on the meaning as we keep yeah. talking about
2: that's the effect of culture. I'll give you an example of meaning. You can let's say you live in a tenement uh, in a place that you're getting ripped off by, uh by the uh, by the owner of the building, and the stairs are in in bad condition, and you fall and you break your leg. You're going to have more pain. you're going to need more um analgesics you're going to need more care than if you fall breaking your leg and you break your leg saving a child from a fire. All meaning. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Again, it's,
1: it's context as to understanding. Or let's say that you're in a situation where uh, you are trying to reach somebody and you don't reach them and you try over and over and over again, and one interpretation of that is, that person doesn't want to talk with me. Or, you could say, that person is a very important person, and they're very busy, and they're very committed to making the world a better place, and they don't have enough time today, or even this week, to get back to me. And they're because they're so busy doing the things that they need to do, so rather than experiencing this as let's say rejection, it could be experienced in this whole other way uh,
2: i I would take it a step further that that's the first part, which is the intellectual interpretation, which is really important. The next step is what what is it that i'm feeling, what wound am I feeling, and you'll notice it somebody's late for example you might say uh, the wound of abandonment well the physiology of abandonment comes and what is the healing field for abandonment commitment right there you make a commitment to whatever it is you make commitment consciousness to let person know that uh, next time they come late for lunch that you're going to leave or you make some commitment and that changes the process so that's that's why I call it biocognition It's cognition and biology in a in a uh, in a context but it's always good to make the the intellectual interpretation first, and then take it to the next level.
1: Yes, I understand. So you're including the feeling, and you're also having your venture in a dialogue with yourself, which is going to shift the frame. It's going to shift the you know the energy field or you know the the morphogenetic field of the of the relationship.
2: The bioinformation, yes. The, the, but exactly. I'll tell you something that that um that I'm working on now that it's really interesting that you started yeah. talking about centenarians. Yes. I, I really believe this in, you, you, you can't stop time. You can't change time. But you can change the interpretation. Oh, for example, it, it, like if you go faster than the speed of light and you travel out, you're going to age a lot uh, slower if you stay on Earth. But yes. at, at a very, very fractional level, one of the things, there's some experiments that are being done, uh, David Eagleman and other people, and they're looking at what happens when there's novelty and when there's routine. When there's routine, time appears to take longer. When there's novelty, time seems to go, uh, excuse me, that that when it's routine, it seems to go faster, and when there's novelty, it seems to go uh, slower. The reason is when there's novelty, you have to use your brain more. What happens, though, is that when you're in novelty, in your brain, time is passing slower, and I think that that has an effect on your whole physiology, on on your longevity. Why am I saying that? First, yes. Because of those experiments. And second, one of the wow. factors that you find always in centenarians is a high level of novelty. They're constantly curious. So their time passes slower in their world, not the real time, but in their world it passes yes. uh, a lot slower.
1: Yes, it's experienced as slower. It's not the
2: experience changing is slower.
1: the speed of time, it's changing the experience of time, which the is where the whole game is really lived if you
2: will. That
1: reminds me of a uh an experiment, Mario, I heard of many uh moons ago in um uh the book The Psychology of Consciousness you're probably aware of uh Robert um his name just uh jumped out of my mind. But uh it was a study of Zen monks who heard the bell sound before sitting in Sashi in Zazen. And they hooked them up with uh, EEG and other devices to notice the shift in their brain as they experienced the sound of the bell. And what they found is with these advanced monks, they experienced the bell novelly, freshly, almost with what they call beginner's mind. Every single time the bell Right. Instead of what we tend to do is habituate in general, habituate the sound and then dismiss it and then say we know it. And we miss, you could say, the changes in resonance and the undertones and the overtones of that bell every single time in a fresh moment it sounds.
2: Yes, and that that, I think that's because, uh, as you said, when you're in routine... You habituate and you go into mindlessness. When you're in novelty, you're in mindfulness. You don't have to go to a cave to be mindful. By finding novelty immediately, you're in mindfulness. So that that's exactly what happens when you're – and they're very curious. They're like children, the, the centenaries. They look, they look at something. They say, look at that bug the way it's crossing the the street. Or <laughs> look at – you know, it's just like they're, they're like a child. And My that is on? very healthy.
1: Yeah, it's so healthy. It means their their brain is not routinized. It's not just continuing down its standard uh, neural pathways. It's actually making new pathways, which also, I love to say, makes people more intelligent.
2: It, it allows them to have greater emotional intelligence. And, and also, I, I would like to extrapolate, and this is an extrapolation, but I think there's some research that's beginning to tap into that, that if you are able to have your brain experience time slower, I think that increases longevity.
1: Yes. 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 That's very interesting. I wonder if that has something to do with affecting the telomeres. Because if you're experiencing life experiencing it slower, we're not saying time has dilated. If we're experiencing it as a slower moment, which means kind of a fuller moment, which also implies being more in the present, that means the telomeres are being less affected by, which are, of course, related to the whole idea of longevity and healthy longevity. Uh, they're being less um, delineated. They're being less cut off.
2: Uh that that's very interesting because the telomeres, as you mentioned, they, they're they're almost like a clock that tells you how many times a cell can divide before it dies. Yes. The telomeres respond to the brain's clock, not to the external ah, clock.
1: Yes. Very interesting. So that it really is, you could say, pardon the expression, wound up with the bio clock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Let Let's come back a little bit to uh, one of the points you make in the book uh, regarding the centenarians, uh, which is that you learned from them, or uh, was it was it from your mentor George Solomon, not to disclose one's chronological age, because one begins to think of oneself in that age, and even worse or comparably, others begin to see you in a certain encrusted context, which has nothing to do necessarily with reality. Could you comment on that piece?
2: Yes. Uh, The moment you tell your age, you've been put into a portal. You'll be treated based on how long you've been around rather than what you've done. I I went to a uh, a museum with uh, George Solomon once, and we were walking in, and the lady... Uh, looks at him and she says, uh, uh, "I'll give you senior citizen uh, uh, rate." And he said, "Why? Why? Why are you assuming that?" "Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry." <laughs> he made her really feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, what he was doing was saying, "Why do you have to peg me?" Uh, and and centenarians are the same way. They 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 don't think in terms. They're they're ageless in the sense that they're, they're not age conscious, but they're space conscious. You yeah. there, there's nothing great about you being around. Why should you be proud that you're, you've been around for eighty, ninety years? There's nothing. What you should be proud of is what you've done with your time, not yeah. how long you've been around. Yes, that's
1: beautiful. It's really the quantitative. It's not the quantitative, I'm sorry. It's the qualitative that we want to Make focus sure. on that. And yes. again, it's uh, you could also say that it's not mm-hmm. what we refer to as objective reality, but the primacy, again, of subjective reality where so much. And subjective reality can also have some yardsticks to it, which, of course, is the work you do as a neuropsychologist, which is to apply some of the beautiful measures that science does give us toward uh, looking at subjective experience.
2: Yes, the individual becomes the baseline rather than a group. And uh, one thing that I've, that I've seen centenarians do, is several have done the same thing. They're talking to you and they'll say, look at that old guy, the way he's walking. And that old guy could be 30 years younger. So they, they don't uh, they don't have that sense of age uh, uh, to them, they and and they they don't act uh, their age. That's another thing. You don't want to act your age because uh, that you've pegged into something. You you, you turn forty five, and let's say that that our culture says that forty five is is middle age. Well, that's a marker. The day before you were forty five, you're not middle-aged. The day you turn into uh, 45, you're middle-aged. And, and then you have the admonitions of the culture editors of that portal. You'll dress nicely in a way that you like and say, well, you don't want to dress like a teenager. You're middle-aged. Well, I want to go back to college. Well, you should think about retirement. You should start saving for your retirement, it's not going back to college. Gradually, they admonish you and they put you back into that place. And after a while, you begin to look middle-aged. Exactly, exactly.
1: You're reminding me of a story, Mario, of, uh, an, of a cousin of mine, who I was down in Florida, and I called her up, I hadn't seen her in many years, and I had heard that she had just gotten married, well, in her case, probably about the fourth or fifth time, and uh, <laughs> yes, it's true, she outlived her husband, and uh, <laughs> maybe a divorce or two here and there along the way, no big deal, but... Um, Beautiful woman into her mid eighties, and she said, "Darling, I would love to see you, but I just got married, and we're driving around in my new my husband's my new husband's new convertible, and we're playing <laughs> teenager. I'm sorry, I don't have the time to see you." <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: that's that's exactly right, and that that's another component that you reminded me of, uh, of the factors that I talk about in in centenarian mindfulness. They know how to set limits. For example, I think what she did was she said, look, I'm doing something very important to me. I care for you, but I'm setting limits. I was going to interview one, and, I, and the first thing they say is, how can I help you? In general, you know, I'm just using it a, yeah. a, a generality. Uh sure. How can I help you? And instead of how can I help you like a caretaker who will make you more important than, than their healthy needs, he said, how can I help? I said, well, you know, I'd love to interview you. Uh, how about Saturday at 6 o'clock? And he thought, he said, no, Saturday at 6 o'clock, I have tango lessons. I can't do it. They set limits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like, okay, I'll give up my tango lessons so I can talk to you. That's caretaking. That's not healthy. That's right. That's right. Now, that's a very healthy, important point for
1: everybody, that we tend to do that. We Again, that's a cultural um, nuance, if you will, that we all have a, there's a certain uh, – how do I say, Judeo-Christian overhang in our uh, society, well, in this case, uh, culture, to be more adherent to what your defined definitions are, so that uh, we feel that we ought to, the word ought or should shows up rather prevalently in our society, if not explicitly, implicitly.
2: And and it's not good for your health. Another component that, that you keep reminding me of these things as you talk about it yes. is that they they don't buy into what our cultures do. Most of the cultures they teach you pseudo humbleness. Hey, yes. wash it in the face. I love this. Uh, I like your shirt. Oh, I've had this shirt for ten years. Yes, they they, they it, it pseudo humbleness is not real. I mean you, you you you're not really being humble. Centenarians are truly humble. I, I, I said to one a lady, she was 101. I said, "You have beautiful eyes," and she said, "Yes, thank you. I do. I do have beautiful eyes. It's so refreshing to hear that." Yes, uh, then, exactly. rather than pseudo humbleness, so that's a, another thing that they do. They acknowledge their gifts, and if you say you're beautiful, they say, "Thank you very much." Yes, I think I am. You know, and that's it, yes. not narcissistic.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's, it's really interesting that we have this self-facing. Um, notion in our society, that's that's a good thing. And it's not just in our society. Um, in ancient, at least in ancient China, maybe not now so much, but there was an idea where you never wanted to show how successful you were to your neighbor, neighbors uh, yes. for fear that they might become jealous or envious and that that energy field would then, you know, uh, be projected onto you. You know, it's, it's got it actually has a little bit of a healthy aspect of it because it's a counteraction to boasting and what can come of that. But there's got to be a healthy middle ground to all of this.
2: There is. And, and uh, the Scandinavians also have that uh, what they call a Jantan Logan, which means you're no better than anyone and, in fact, you're worse. Uh, <laughs> I think that reminds me of uh, Ernest Hemingway had a very wonderful way to deal with that. He wasn't particularly leading with that, but I'd say you can apply it. He said something like, "I'll paraphrase." He said that the, there's no uh, nobleness in being superior to your to your fellow men. The the nobleness comes when you become superior to your former self.
1: Oh yes, oh yes, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I really like I really like the ring of that. I really do. You know, uh, in this conversation, I'm thinking about a place that uh, where Jack Benny and I share something i tell everybody when they ask me my age yeah i'm 39 still and
2: you know, sometimes they <laughs> yeah.
1: say sometimes they say again or when'd you become 39
2: <laughs> well i have a good friend when when they ask him his age he says my age is none of my business <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's great it's great and it's just so interesting um one of the stories you tell uh, Mario is about the priest who comes to give the last rites to a gentleman in the hospital, but there's a mistake. Could you share that? This, oh, really, yes, this yes. really puts yeah. the the point on it.
2: Yes, that brings in the culture and the culture editors. This, this priest goes in. It's in a Catholic hospital, so you see the culture there. And the priest comes in, which is an authority, And he gives the the patient the last rites, and the patient dies within fifteen minutes. The problem is that he went to the wrong room. The patient was not scheduled to die. The patient who was scheduled to die waited two days until the priest came.
1: Excuse me, that's an interesting phrase in itself. Scheduled to die, according to that's right, you
2: know exactly (laughs) the the person, the interpretation, the attribution that they gave as well. If the priest is a, a a theological authority says that I'm going, and the doctor who is a uh, physiological or physio- physiology authority says that I'm gone, well, then I'm gone. And that's what the, the person tells the bi- body, and you have a parasympathetic reaction and it stops your heart.
1: Exactly, exactly. This is the power of suggestion. This is also why hypnotherapy in good hands can be such a powerful modality, uh, why Milton Erickson was such an amazing uh, healer for so many because he understood that, that intricate relationship between language and mind and body. And through suggestion, uh, so many miraculous, what we would call miraculous things, have happened. And in fact, that reminds me of another story that you tell um, in your book and your, your audio CD set of uh, a gentleman who was given uh, the placebo pill uh, from a rare disease that he had or a disease I should say and uh he was it was described as a, kind of a Pac-Man effect. Could you share with the audience that story?
2: And this good doctor, because he used the placebo as as, as one of his uh, ways oh. to, to help, uh yeah. told the patient, look this tumor you have, I'm gonna give you medication that is so powerful you can imagine it it's like a, like a Pac-Man uh eating away at your at your tumor. Within six weeks the tumor was gone, which is not the way it works with uh, normal biological processes. But he happened to read in the paper that the medication that we gave him uh, didn't have any, any effect that's The tumor came back. <clears throat> Once again he was you know, right. Did we something even more and it's even more powerful than Pac Man. Went back, the tumor was gone, but for the guy, I saw on television that said that that medication also was not uh, good, and it was just a placebo, and the person died. Oh, uh,
1: oh, uh, there it is, there it is. This is the way the mind and body work together. It's always been the case. It it includes tr- culture. It also can transcend culture. Uh, you know, that's another interesting point. There's something about the language. Uh, The use of language, its effect on our brain, its effect on our emotions that can move us in one direction or another. So while it's largely cultural, and I think I I would like to make the point and hear what you have to say about it. I think we'd agree and be aligned on this point that uh, culture is not necessarily something that's out there, so to speak, occupying some kind of amorphous space in the geographical landscape, but culture first begins in one's own family. Each family is its own, you could say, unit, if you will. Not a very pleasant way of putting it, but uh, it's like a fractal aspect of nature, uh, of culture.
2: Yes, uh, and, and, and those are the shared beliefs. And culture, I mean, anthropologically, it's complicated, but basically culture, in essence, is the um, who you include, who you exclude and the language you use to communicate uh, oh. in a very general sense yeah uh, so that's what you get you can see that families for example uh, they uh, they quote have illnesses and many of them die of the illness why it's not just genetics genetics is just a predisposition what they do is they eat together they're in the same environment they think the same things you can even see pets who begin to look like their owners because of the space that they're sharing with each other Exactly. And the food
1: that they're eating. <laughs> exactly. I say that all the time to my clients and students. <laughs>
2: it's
1: part of a larger what? field. And 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 uh, also our bodies and brains, of course, are plastic and uh meaning, you know, fully resilient. So we're always responding to our to our conditions,
2: if you will. Very much and, and, and the neuroplasticity you talked about there's something very interesting. When I studied neuropsychology uh, you, and, and some of it is still studied that way too, is that the, the brain is compartmentalized. To a certain degree, Is true. But for example, the occipital uh, visual cortex, it's for the visual cortex, and that's what it is. It's specialized in that. But it's been shown now that if you block that, and uh, Pasquale Leone has done that. What is it? He'll, uh, teachers that, that, that were trained to work with uh, uh, students that are blind, what they did is they blinded the uh, teachers for three weeks, and uh, they did MRIs, functional MRIs, to so see how the cortex, uh, the visual cortex, was, was functioning. And before they blinded them, the visual cortex was showing that it was for visual input. After three weeks, after three weeks, the visual cortex became a tactile cortex, completely oh plastic. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, so interesting. Exactly. You know, and even with the organs of the body, Mario, we find that when the uh, the gallbladder is malfunctioning, the liver takes over some of those functions. And that goes straight across the board with all of the organs are always compensating for each other. And now how in the world can a liver do what a spleen does except that it can? And then that gets, well, that will go into a whole domain having to do with uh, stem cells and differentiation of cells and that, you know, you can almost say that we're one big cell. That's, I never quite put it that way. But in some way, we are one big cell that's differentiated into different parts.
2: Uh, well, yes. Even the, the, the heart, for example. The heart's not a pump. The heart is, a, is an endocrine organ. It, it creates its own hormones. It has its own regulation as well as taking regulations from, from other parts of the brain. But the heart has more connections to the brain than the brain to the heart. So the brain, the heart speaks more to the brain than the other way around. So that's why you yeah. say I have a gut feeling. The gut has uh, uh, neurotransmitter receptors. So, so it's, it's yeah. really a bioinformational field, as you're saying, rather than just localizational kinds of things.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. In fact, I I really think of the uh, that we have three brains. I, I I appreciate this thought about the heart as the end part of the endocrine system. I would say that it's also part of the nervous system because it's yes. largely electrical. It's obviously electrochemical, but it's largely electrical in nature. So I sort of see it as an extension of the prefrontal cortex. And it has its own, as you were saying, its own receptor sites, just like the gut. And uh, in other words, you could almost say, Mario, that the general historic understanding of physiology is largely mistaken. <laughs> it's a case it's of very mistaken <clears throat> identity because yes. it's like we have brain matter strewn throughout our bodies. Your comment? And, and
2: yes, and if you study the mechanical components of the body, it looks very uh, deterministic and, and very reductionistic. It has mechanical processes like the blood flows, and but if you go beyond that and you begin to see the co-authoring of the system, then you can no longer go with that model. I'll give you an example. Biology, in order to uh, legitimize itself, it borrowed the principles of Newtonian physics, which is really good for uh, automobiles, planets, carburetors, and things like that. It's not building. that great for for building things, for, for, for living things. So since it borrowed from Newtonian physics, it borrowed the concept of entropy, which is going from order to disorder. That's why you see deterioration in the brain with that model. If you yeah. use complexity, which is more in tune with living systems, with open systems, complexity goes from order to disorder. The brain becomes more complex rather than, than more disordered. Yes, yes,
1: exactly, exactly. So what you really, you're really moving toward a shift from just a Newtonian model to a quantum model. Then we can to, really to, begin to understand really the way the body systems interact with the mind systems
2: moving the the complexity theory is really is very very powerful uh, because we're, we're quantum at the course at the uh, 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 sub-nuclear but that's I right. think that if you use uh, uh, complexity and chaos theory uh, for example the the heart is chaotic in between beats it has a chaotic rhythm and and the less chaotic the more of the uh, of the pathology of the heart well that's that cannot be explained with with a uh, determinist uh, model because it's linear. If you go non-linear with the complexity, you find that the reason that it has that variability, that that chaotic variability, is so it can allow flexibility and an input from many, many different sources that homeostasis could not allow. Homeostasis is also a very uh, deterministic uh, uh, no. system, and it's 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 a it's a constant uh, variation with complexity rather than just uh, uh, linear. Processes.
1: Right, exactly. That's a very interesting new way, refreshing way, a novel yes. way you know, to really think about the body-mind as a system. And uh, it's not linear at all, and even homeostasis ain't, you know, just like Yogi Berra said, the future
2: ain't <clears throat> what it used to be, you know? So, exactly. <laughs> I, I do a workshop. <laughs> you know it's not homeostasis is, is still very mechanical. I do a workshop called uh, How to Navigate Uncertainty with Chaos as Your Guide, and that <laughs> actually turns into. <laughs> I love it. <laughs>
1: That's great. That's great. <laughs> I, I can't let you go just yet if you have a, because we got a late start. If, do you have a few more minutes?
2: Sure. Yes, of course. And, okay. and thank you. By the way, you're doing a, you're making it very easy for me to talk about my work.
1: Oh good I'm so glad I'm so glad that's my job. I'm doing my job excellent um, You're doing it's, well. it's a thank you it It's such a pleasure to speak with someone with your uh experience and level of creativity it's It's so much fun uh there's so many people in our field and mine being primarily psychotherapy and stress management, that you know it tends to ebb toward its lowest common denominator instead of splash and you know. Act like an exciting, you know, vibration, which it really, really is. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I'm. I, I've spent a fair amount of time studying something called uh, the German New Medicine, but especially an offshoot of that that I actually brought to the United States from uh, France and uh, Montreal, called Total Biology. Is that something that you've come across in your comings and goings? Total
2: uh, biology. It's, it's actually- from Dr. Hammer, or is that uh, but Dr. Uh,
1: Hammer, in, in a sense, it's a derivative. A Dr. Derivative, Hammer yes. was, was the um, teacher of Dr. Claude Sabah, who was a Moroccan-born Jewish physician, MD, yes. PhD. Uh, one of his uh, parents was a, um, I think, <laughs> an Eastern Orthodox priest, <laughs> and his Why mother the mixture, was huh? <laughs> Jewish. And so yes. he, you know, I often say, if you really want to be successful in life, you have to be schizophrenic. And so, that's another
2: conversation. <laughs> Multicultural, um, but, that's right, yes. No, right. Well, uh, there, there, there's something very similar, that uh, uh, functional medicine, it, it has some similarities, in that it looks at the total person, it looks at the environment, and it looks at what you can do from the outside to replicate what drugs do. Not just homeopathic, but, but more, like, what can you do, uh, mind-body, what can you do with behaviors, what can you do with environments, uh and, and it really looks at the total person it looks at the individual as the universe uh, the universe in the sense of uh, you being the, the baseline as opposed That's to right. averages because uh, unfortunately health sciences is, is, is not it, it assumes that it's that it's very exact that it's not it's based on average to, uh, statistics uh, analysis of variance analysis of covariance and there's no such thing as an average person but you become an average and you're treated uh, as nice. if you were an, an individual From the average. So, if you have an illness, for example, and you look at the normal curve and the the average uh, lifespan or the course of that illness and the prognosis and diagnosis and so forth, uh, says that you're going to have six months to live. Well, that's an average. On the two sides of the curve, on the left side, on the left uh, uh, tail of the curve, there are people that live six weeks. But if you go to the outliers on the right side of the curve, there may people be uh, that may live ten years. So, what should a responsible professional do? You should say, okay. This is an average of six months, and there are people on the left side that live six weeks, but we want to look at the outliers, people who have the same illness that you have, who live 10 years. Why don't we study them together, I as a physician and you as my patient, and see what these people are doing so we can both learn what we can do to overcome that concept of averages and go to be an outlier. That's ethical, and that's being a scientist rather than a technician.
1: Yes. I understand. That's a very good distinction. I mean, what, what client or patient ever, has ever walked into your office and said, Hi, Dr. Martinez,
2: I am a statistic.
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> there was one centenarian who went to the doctor, and he said, the doctor said, I have some really bad news for you because you have a very rare illness that only 2% make it. And he said, well, thank you. I'm one of those 2%.
1: <laughs> there you go. Exactly. That's <laughs> and the they believe it. Thinking. That is it, right there. Quintessential. <laughs> you know. Now you're reminding me of something, and that is <laughs> one of the tenets of total biology is uh, that emotional stress and conflict, in particular, body as metaphor. I often describe it as Louise Hay on steroids will be the thing that unravels the physiological stress and disease. Therefore, as I know you cite in your book, uh, in total biology, we will talk about uh, someone saying, "I, I cannot digest that. I cannot believe, I cannot digest what this person has done. And in fact, that would lead to a stress because the brain is registering those comments as real because in some level they are and will begin to send gastric juices or other kinds of enzymatic activity in order to heal and solve the problem because ultimately the brain is a problem solver and seeks to create a level of balance inside the physiology, you know?
2: Yes, and that's the biosymbolic uh question That's that right. you're asking for the, you the, the brain, the brain will give it to you. Symbolism. Yes. Why, why is it that women that have been sexually abused have significant uh, level of problems with their reproductive organs? It's very similar. Yes,
1: exactly. exactly. And it goes on and on and on like that. But the thing that total biology also talks a lot about, and so does Dr. Hammer in the German New Medicine, as it's called, is, who by the way, as a rigorous scientist, worked Uh, with interviewing thousands of patients and found that there was a significant emotional trauma approximately three months prior to the onset or the diagnosis of, he worked primarily with prostate, testicular, and ovarian and lung cancers. And he found over and over again, there was always, not sometimes, some form of emotional trauma that could be cited prior to the onset of the disease. He was able to use CAT scans, PET scans, what have you to determine where in the brain uh, the trauma was. And based on the nature of the trauma, predict what kind of cancer would be forthcoming. And he used emotional therapy basically as a way of resolving the problem without having to utilize conventional medical means. He actually got into a lot of trouble with that. Dr. Sabah went another step and said, it's not just about cancer, about any disease. Anything can be understood metaphorically as a conflict of an emotional conflict, usually in the family and sometimes always cultural, just to reinforce your point, um, and often generational. So but he always talked about the conflict of the diagnosis, you know, and said, and this is also so much in accordance with your centenarian research, Mariel. Um, the patient goes in and sits down with the doctor, and the doctor says to the patient, you know, Mr. Jones, uh, I don't like what I see. And the patient is a little concerned by that comment, knows what the doctor is sort of implying, um, and says, well, you know, doctor, I don't like what I'm seeing either. <laughs> yes.
2: Well, you <laughs> that, know, I think... Uh,
1: that patient is the patient that has the higher, better prognosis than the one who says, yes, doctor, I understand.
2: Yes, uh, that, that external control uh, is not as good as internal control. But, you know, I'm, I'm taking psychonorminology to the next level, which is cultural Psycho Psychonorminology psycho- yeah. has studied uh, as if uh, culture doesn't exist and, and too much rats... Uh, rat studies. Rats are good to study, but you have to remember that they don't have a sense of, uh, uh, of their longevity and their mortality, and they don't have meaning. So what you're studying with rats is the neuroendocrinology and, 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 and immunology, not the cycle, because the cycle includes meaning and it includes oh, yeah. uh, uh, mortality and so forth. But I'll give you another example. I've seen more than pretty close to a thousand patients in many years with fibromyalgia. I have not found one that didn't have some kind of a shaming wound, which is pro-inflammatory.
1: Case in point. Corroborating the fundamental idea that underlying (laughs) somatic disease or
2: illness will be
1: (laughs) some emotional undercurrents.
2: And, and, and unfortunately, if you do a, a clinical history and you don't go deep, you're not going to find it. Uh, I was looking, and, and it's a high incidence of sexual abuse, but uh, there was this patient that just wasn't fitting. <clears throat> and I kept asking if any of abuse and kept going on and even doing something or a deep relaxation, couldn't find anything. But I said, okay, how did you sleep at night when you were a little girl? Well, I was never abused, but how did you sleep? I didn't sleep very well. Why? Because when, now that you ask me, I remember that my parents fought a lot, and I thought that if I went to sleep, they were going to kill themselves. So therefore, a hypervigilance that doesn't let you go to sleep deeply, you don't get delta sleep. You are deprived of human uh, growth hormones. There goes fibromyalgia. Uh,
1: no melatonin either.
2: Uh, uh, melatonin, but mainly the uh, if you don't go into delta, you don't have in the and 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 the theta's. Uh, you don't especially delta. that you don't have the um the secretion of of uh of course melatonin is, is deprived, but the secretion of human growth hormones, which is what yeah. allows the the immune system to do the repair and rebuild protein uh, muscles and so forth so if you don't have that after a while then yeah you're going to have a problem and you know and I explained it more deeply Absolutely. in in the book and other articles, but that 's basically the idea that there's always some kind of shaming or hyper alarm that doesn't allow you to go into deep sleep. Fibromyalgia, the main component, I think, is delta sleep deprivation. Interesting. Really and, interesting. And it can be cured, by the way. Yeah.
1: So you refer to shame, abandonment, and the third one is...
2: A betrayal. I'm sorry? Betrayal.
1: Betrayal. Okay. And what would rejection be considered part of abandonment?
2: Well, it's it's interesting because it's very very subjective. For example, I worked with twins, and uh, both had been sexually abused by their uncle, and one of them saw it as shame, and the other one saw it as betrayal. So you have to identify it subjectively, as you said before, uh, what okay. the person interprets the wound, and then you give it the uh, the healing field. For abandonment, yes. it's uh, a commitment. For betrayal, is loyalty, and for shame, is honor.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. As I was reading, Mario, when I read that loyalty was the healing field for betrayal, what also came to my mind was trust.
2: Yes, because it, it's really a betrayal of trust. It's a, a Exactly. Tricking.
1: That's my point. That's yes. my point. It seemed to me that the more accurate counterpoint to betrayal was trust the other side of the coin.
2: Yes, because uh because loyalty has to do with, with uh uh trusting without evidence. It's almost yeah. like faith. That's mm-hmm. correct. That's correct. And exactly. Sometimes uh people will say, well what's the difference between uh abandonment and, and betrayal? Uh you have been left uh and and you in betrayal you have been left possibly and I think the difference is that abandonment is 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 losing a commitment to something, betrayal is losing a devotion, the trust in a devotion, the devoted love or a devoted God or something yes. a, a more exalted, a higher emotion than than than, uh, than the abandonment. Yes,
1: yes, yes. You're you're highlighting the subjective interpretive aspect of it is so important because I I often say to clients and to students that. Uh, abandonment could be experienced by an infant at his or her mother's breast, uh, which, by the way, I think is uh, the in utero experience from conception forward is something highly underplayed, and I, I would like to see it. In fact, I'm doing something in New York with a group of consummate professionals uh, regarding a couple from Brazil, actually, about the in utero Prenatal, perinatal experience, um, but it's uh, it's underplayed in our understanding of uh, you know, grow uh, what do you call it adult psychology, but um, that the the infant could interpret the mother leaving the child for a moment, a moment in the crib, removing the infant from the breast because she had to uh, deal with an emergency of either another child or a husband or. Whomever. And then comes back, the mother's intention was fully to give the proper feeding to the infant, but the infant may feel that they're being left, and they don't have any understanding of the reason. They just know they feel they've been, they, the, the fact is, they were momentarily left. The subject conversation well, yeah, might be abandonment. Could you comment? That's a here?
2: great point. Yes, yeah. uh, I think uh, what, the way to look at it is like this. In an in a ontogenetic way, abandonment is most primitive. Then you have uh, shame and then you have betrayal. Why? Because if you leave a child, as you said, they could die. Uh, shame, you can't shame a child till they can see themselves in the mirror and say, this is me. You have to have an image of me. And betrayal is yeah. higher because betrayal is trust. But, but abandonment, as you said... Uh, the removal of the breast, uh, and, and this, and we're very resilient. I don't want to m- come out with uh, uh, people to, to think that I'm talking about one time. It's a pattern of abandonment. Absolutely. Well, the,
1: Absolutely.
2: The child doesn't have a word for it, but it has a biocognition that later can give it a word and say, oh, so this is abandonment. It, there's yeah. a physiological, psychonorminological process of taking something away that you need, and if it happens in a pattern, even though you don't have the word for abandonment, you have a bioinformational field. That feels like abandonment, and then later you can give it a linguistic uh, uh, label exactly,
1: exactly. Only later on can they give it a, a, a term to with a concept connected to describe what their feeling was from way back. and your point, yes. I think it's a good one for maybe wrapping up a bit here, uh, which is that. We are resilient, and even though we have had those patterns way back when that may have gotten even somewhat entrenched, even through abuse of different sorts, uh, be it physical, emotional, verbal, sexual, um, it is it forms a certain level of identity. But before I kind of playfully said it's a good thing to be schizophrenic, and of course I was playing with that, you know literally but in the work that i've done and the work that you were uh you're doing i see that uh you you talk about almost like one identity could develop the oh i know the way you talk about ignoring what isn't working and building on what is working so in a sense you're building a new neural net Around what is working in somebody and extinguishing over time. I know this sounds a little behaviorist, but there is a level on which that may be true. You're extinguishing those neural patterns that weren't serving, that were actually creating
2: illness. Could you comment uh, yes, on that? Yes, because yes, uh, and and uh, to differentiate it from just from behaviorism, you definitely, if you have a thought, you're going to have a uh, a uh, neurotransmitters for that thought they don't go as deep as if that thought then becomes biocognition because you have more emotion, you have more processes going on. So the more exactly. contributory factors, the, the stronger and the deeper the neurotransmitters are going to function and the stronger and the deeper the uh, neuromaps are going to be developing. So right. this is why saying to yourself, I'm a wonderful person, I'm a wonderful doesn't work because it's only intellectual. If you embody it and you give yourself evidence, then the neuromaps work a lot faster and deeper. And then you can, it's like use it or lose it kind of thing.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's like building a muscle with love. It's like building a muscle with passion, you know. Yes. You don't just <laughs> do the mechanical act. You have to throw your whole being into it.
2: Yes, n- never Pollyannish, and, oh, I'm so wonderful because I was hurt. Never do that. Always embody what's going on and then deal with whatever whatever it is that was going on. Exactly. Be honest with yourself, in other
1: words, and move yes, on from there by building up the other aspects of yourself. Exactly. Your closing words to our audience: This has been so wonderful, Mario.
2: Well, thank you so much, and and I hope that uh, that the the audience uh, got uh, something out of this. But the, the most important thing is that we, we can't uh, we can't really. Um, simplify things and say, well, uh, forget about medicine, forget about this, forget about that. It doesn't work that way. What you have to do is take the best science rather than, uh, that's why I don't like the word alternative medicine. I like integrative medicine, bringing the best. Biocognition doesn't replace anything. It just enhances the science, and it's based on science. But also, don't buy into the reductionist technicians. If you have a doctor that doesn't want to work with you, find another one. And find a scientist who's willing to look at an empirical question and say, okay, let's find out. Prove it to me and I'll I'll learn something from you. Rather than say, no, this is how it is. I know more about medicine than you do. Do it my way. Don't do that because uh, you're you're a consumer and you want people that are willing to be teachers rather than uh, uh, inquisition kinds of people that don't have (laughs) any any respect for, for you. So the attribution is really important. How you attribute things will have a biology. And then look for the best science. And uh, and allow yourself to believe what I call that you can turn into centenarian mindfulness at any age. Uh, and that doesn't mean you're going to live 100, but it means that you're going to live a quality of life that you didn't have before if you don't allow yourself to accept that strength that you have within you that has been developed. The causes of health have been developing for the last 100,000 years for Homo sapiens. So yeah. the causes of health are stronger than the causes of illness. Mm. Oh, absolutely!
1: It doesn't mean you'll live to 100. It'll mean you'll live to 200.
2: I have a a good friend who uh, whose father turned 80, and we went out to dinner, and he was a little depressed. And I said, "Look, I'm I'm a little concerned about you." And uh, he said, "Why?" I said, "Because I don't know what you're going to do for the next 40 years." And he just lit up, and it was just a completely different <laughs> perception of. Uh, it's a true. I don't know, but what it does is it empowers a person to bring out the best of what they have.
1: Exactly, exactly. I say to my father all the time, "What are you? It's so similar. What are you going to do for the next forty, fifty years? <laughs> <Develop> some <laughs> wonderful hobbies, Dad, because you know." So long. He said, "I'm too busy to get to die. You know,
0: You don't have much that. to
1: do with this life. You know, <laughs> <laughs> A very healthy perspective." Well, Doctor Mario Martinez, I want to just thank you again for the good work you're doing. Excellent work you're doing. And, my pleasure. And. Uh, yeah. And I congratulate
2: really- you for the congratulate you for the great work you do also.
1: Well thank you so much. Thank you so much. Your website. Do you want to share your website with our audience?
2: Yes, it's uh, very simple. Biocognitive.com. B I O C O G N I T I V E. Or look up biocognition, uh, Google Biocognition, Biocognitive and, and you can go there.
1: Beautiful work. Great
2: Mario. Thanks again and we'll thank have you.
1: another time.
2: Anytime you want. My pleasure.
1: Beautiful. Thanks so much. Bye bye. I know. Dr. Mario Martinez, The Mind, Body, Code, How to Change the Beliefs that Limit Your Health, Longevity, and Success is a book that just reached the uh, Amazon.com best-selling book in the field of psychology and medicine today. So you could say today was a, uh, a celebration. Today's show was a celebration of Dr. Mario Martinez, which he wholly deserves. Anyone who is blazing a trail, who is willing to really think out of the box and, you know, just be uh, really creative is the kind of person that creates novelty in the world, stimulates us. The imagination, I think I have said many times, is God's great gift to us, and we need to really honor that so much. And, Uh, What a pleasure for me to interview Mario. This is work that I've been uh, looking at for a number of years now, and uh, I integrate it into a lot of the work that I do with my own clients and students. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Our website is www.abetterworld.tv on the media side, and on the counseling, coaching, and therapy, stress management side, Mitchellrabin.com. M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, that's double L, R-A-B as in brilliant, I-N dot com. So he told us not to be modest, right? That's right. You know, it's a fun thing to give acknowledgement and to be acknowledged. It's a very powerful way of increasing immune function, by the way, and just generally feeling good. Uh, the role of pleasure, while it's not the highest experience in the world, is also a very pretty high one. Let's say that joy, happiness, well-being, uh, spiritual fulfillment are the very, you know, the creme de la creme of human experience, of beaming optimum health, another one. Uh, but pleasure is very much a a conduit to these higher Virtuous emotions, these, as Mario puts it beautifully, exalted emotions. So I want to encourage you to be um, free with the idea of acknowledging others and acknowledging yourself as you move through your life. And uh, it's rich, it's an act of generosity toward others and toward yourself. And everyone sort of gets aligned in the loving space that it creates. So on that note, I just want to thank you all again for uh, listening to and becoming part of A Better World's Community. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. We love when you listen live and know that most listen in archive. That began to rhyme. In fact, I wanted to say as, a, as an um, addendum to something Mario said, when he said to look for a doctor or look for a scientist to work with when it comes to this idea of growing older. We all grow older, and a marking of growing older could be to become wiser. But aging is voluntary. Aging is something else. And uh, to distinguish between the two, I think, is actually an act of wisdom in itself. So, uh, with that said, I want to just also remind you that we uh, sustain ourselves on donations. We always appreciate that. And to help empower all of you, A Better World is becoming a foundation, a nonprofit, which will allow us to give back to you not just the content of our shows, but even something highly hailed in our society called a tax deduction. So please bear that in mind when you visit our website. You can always contact me. Also, I love your comments and uh, feedback. It's always helpful to me at mjr at abetterworld.net. mjr, my initials, at abetterworld.net. Remember that uh, we have all sorts of interesting energy balancing systems here at A Better World. You can read about those on both websites, and uh, we offer them at discounted rates for those who are interested in dealing with the energy fields around everything that we've been talking about here. So uh, also note that in uh, New York, on March 11th, coming up soon, at One Spirit uh, Learning Alliance, A Better World and One Spirit are partnering and collaborating in what will be an evening on pre- and perinatal psychology, i.e. conscious conception through to conscious birthing. Uh, This will be really wonderful. We'll have uh, my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Francois Amigues, osteopath from the Ideal Community in Jaffrey, British Columbia. Coming down, we will have Flora Upplinger coming up from uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Carla Marchada also coming up, Marchado uh, from Brazil, and um, Monica Matos from Minneapolis, who is making uh, an extraordinary film called Life Imitates Birth. And uh, we'll be at uh, the One Spirit Seminary Learning Alliance on West 36th Street, go to the website for more details on March 11th from 7 to 9.30. thirty, will be a really interesting presentation, a clip of the film, and uh, following, followed by a robust, dynamic discussion. It's for everybody, uh, although we are specifically inviting uh, midwives, doulas, OBGYNs, young parents, parents-to-be those contemplating being parents and anyone who is interested to come join uh, we will be doing the same thing pretty much at the UN on March 12th, also open to the public, interestingly. Also, last, I want to remind you that there will be the Paradigm Shifts Film Festival, which is actually a multicultural festival, music and film, uh, focusing on indigenous people and the environment, that will be in New York City at Baruch College uh, starting on March 19th uh, for two consecutive weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of both. Again, just go to betterworld.tv, and all the information is there. It's really going to be good as well and something you really want to tune into if you're anywhere in the New York area, tri-state region. Again, thanks so much for joining. Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World spent the, uh, the show with Dr. Mario Man- Martinez, the author of The Mind Body Code. Well worth your while. Thanks to Sound True for publishing it and for the audio CD, which you can get at their website, SoundTrue.com. Tr- On that note, how about a little Mozart, folks? Good night and see you next